world's not as simple as it used to be. It's not enough to be a good guy anymore. We have to be the best. The time has come. All will be accounted for. Or we will hunt them. Stand up! It's time to be the heroes we were always meant to be. He's getting older now, he has more personality, and I think that helps things. But yeah, we're a little bit nervous about taking a drive with him tomorrow. Well, personality helps. Not all the time. <laughs> That's my Tinder profile. Hey, yo! <laughs> it's not going to get any funnier than that. That's the funniest joke we're so, going to tell all evening. If, if, <laughs> I think if you can, you know, just have enough distractions for the trip that'd be my only thought like because we we've only gone like maybe an hour or two you know we've flown with the children which i wouldn't wish on anyone yeah um i'm 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 anxious to get in a road trip in the car where we have a dvd player and we can stop when we want to and we can give them activities to do and that kind of thing uh we can't we won't you know we don't have to hurriedly take off belts and shoes and you know try not to look suspicious as we like pass a million things through secure i hate flying i love traveling i hate flying i hate tsa Last time I flew, which wasn't too long ago, when I went actually probably a little longer than I think. It's when I already went to go see twice. I got so mad. There was some like lady, like slightly older, not a Karen, just a little older, a little confused. You could tell she hadn't flown very often. And she was asking a question about some I think it was a camera equipment or just something touristy. And she was asking questions, and the guy was just like, just put it in the bin. And she was like, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. Just put it in the bin. And just like getting aggressively firmer and not even listening to her question. I was like, ah, you don't, you're not even, you're not even like a mall cop. You're worse than that. You have no, yeah. you have no authority or power, and yet you are power tripping on this poor lady. And everyone just goes along with it because, you know, there's, there's. Where else are you going to fly? Like airport jail monopoly. somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a flight Ugh. monopoly. <laughs> Flightopoly. Flight, yeah. <laughs> well, that was torture. <laughs> no fun. And speaking of torture, <laughs> it's the Superhuman Registration Podcast, where we are here to talk about not superheroes. Not today. Yeah, weird, right? Yeah. Uh, should we talk about PP first? <laughs> there's there's got to be a better way to do that. Uh, so, <laughs> if there is, I'm not looking for it. I mean, I was... <laughs> I always understood that when you're going to talk about stuff like this, you should use the proper names for things. That's what they tell me when I'm talk supposed to talk about stuff with my children, right? Uh-huh. Sure. So, we're going to talk about urine. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, so we are here to talk about a couple of Marvel Comics adaptations of works of classic literature. One, a very famous bit of British romance, Pride and Prejudice, and the other, a fanciful American fairy tale, the Wizard of Oz. Very interesting, very different adaptations. So it sounds like we want to start with Pride and Prejudice. It's more like we have to eat our vegetables before we can have our cake. Mm, fair enough. I concur. So, Pride and Prejudice was a five-issue miniseries adapted from the text by Jane Foster. I mean Jane Austen. Had to get that in there once. <laughs> I know the name. I freaking slipped it once. Had to say it just once to get it out of the way. And the rest of the time, I'm going to get the name right unless I do it on accident, in which case it will actually be funny that time. So anyway, <laughs> Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, adapted for comics by Nancy Butler, uh, with art by Hugo Petrus, colors by Alejandro Torres, and letters by Dave Sharp. 
The story of Pride and Prejudice follows Elizabeth Bennet and her four sisters, cheerleader so-and-so, what's-her-face, and the ugly one. <laughs> Elizabeth Bennet and her sisters, Jane, uh, Mary, Kitty, and Lydia. These five girls are from a family that is kind of borderline aristocracy. They're very concerned with marrying well because something has happened where their house is not going to be theirs should their father pass away. It's going to fall into the hands of a distant cousin who is apparently estranged from the family and would likely just turn them all out. So I'm not going to get into all of the details of the story in great depth uh, because there's a lot. It's a, it's not a massive novel, but it's pretty extensive and there's a lot of plot that happens. And if you like Pride and Prejudice, you're already probably more familiar with the plot beats than I am. And if you don't like Pride and Prejudice, unfortunately, not to, not to you know, spoil the whole thing, but I don't think this adaptation is going to win you over. To keep it brief, the Bennett sisters catch the attention of a couple of single gentlemen, uh, one of whom finds himself drawn to the oldest sister, Jane. This is a Mr. Bingley. Mr. Bingley's friend, Mr. Darcy, doesn't seem too keen on their relationship or really on people in general. He's pretty antisocial, pretty short, pretty curt, pretty rude. Uh, doesn't make much of a great impression on anyone. Uh, with the passage of time, the, the Bennett family meets multiple other people, uh, including a Mr. Wickham, who is an old acquaintance of Mr. Darcy's and who claims to have been done wrong by him. Uh, Mr. Wickham's poor opinion of Mr. Darcy rubs off on Elizabeth, and Elizabeth does not have any patience for Mr. Darcy at all, thinks very poorly of him, becomes very shocked one day when Mr. Darcy actually proposes marriage to her in a very unflattering way, is very critical of her, of her family, of all of their conduct, and she is, you know, pretty justifiably offended, turns him down. Also, as, as part of this whole thing, Mr. Darcy discourages Mr. Bingley from pursuing Jane further, and Elizabeth is again, quite upset by this and basically tells Mr. Darcy never wants to see her again and good riddance. Mr. Darcy learns that he was mistaken. Jane and Mr. Bingley were really actually quite fond of each other. He assumed that Mr. Bingley was really interested in Jane, but Jane didn't return his affections and so he said you should stop pursuing this and go off after someone else. Once he realizes he's wrong, he tries to set things right there. Uh, then things kind of get even more tense when Lizzie's sister Lydia runs off with soldier boy Mr. Wickham and they are, the whole family is in uproar because this is scandalous. They ran off. They're not married. They're not apparently going to get married and nobody knows where they are. The scandal is going to haunt these uh, four remaining sisters for the rest of their days. They'll have trouble finding husbands. Mr. Wickham, as it turns out, is a huge scoundrel. He's uh, been a layabout. He's been loafing. He's been kind of swindling money from people for a long time. Mr. Darcy knew about it, but kind of kept silent about it because he didn't think it was his place to disclose things. Darcy hears about all this. He feels bad about everything. He seeks out Mr. Wickham and Lydia and arranges for them to get married and kind of pays them to, or pays Mr. Wickham specifically to keep them quiet and tries to do all of this without letting Liz Bennett know because he thinks that she's still upset with him over everything and she, you know, because of the goodness that he shows to her family, she forgives him, and the two fall in love and get married. 
There are a lot more twists and turns in there, uh, including brief sort of detour where Elizabeth is courted by the uh, increasingly ridiculous cousin uh, from whom their family is estranged, Mr. Collins, who tries to marry her despite the fact that uh, he looks like, I don't know, Rowan Atkinson on a bad day? And is just just ridiculous, ridiculous human being, has no sense of boundaries, has no sense of social graces, very awkward, very rude and condescending and completely unknowing, humble brags and name drops like nobody's business, tends to be a fairly comedic character. Anyway, uh, yeah, it's, it's an interesting adaptation. I think it's quite the ambitious endeavor to adapt a story that, you know, most famously, I think, has been adapted into a six to eight hour miniseries for TV and try to cram the whole thing into five issues. Very ambitious. What did you all think of it? Uh, not a fan. Uh, <laughs> not a fan. I think I think we should also establish the levels of familiarity we have with Pride and Prejudice, because I actually think that's a little important for this specific... I think it's very yes. important for this conversation. Uh, so I'll go first. Uh, this is my first interaction ever with anything Pride and Prejudice. All right. Uh, okay. I, um, when I started dating my now wife, uh, found out she was a fan. And in an effort to earn brownie points, sat through the Kira Knightley adaptation and later suffered through the BBC several hour miniseries adaptation. Have not read Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, but I kind of want to now because a lot of these characters need to be eaten. <laughs> Starting with Mrs. Bennett. So my first exposure to Pride and Prejudice actually was Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. I picked it up, I started reading it, and about a third of the way through I decided that the book would be better if it didn't have any zombies in it, and realized that that was a well, thing I could do something about, so I went out and picked up the actual Pride and Prejudice, read it, quite liked it. I have seen many adaptations of Pride and Prejudice, not all of them. I've seen the Kiara Knightley adaptation, which I think is pretty decent. The uh, yeah. BBC series is excellent if you are you know, laid up for a while and want something that's kind of comfort comfortable and charming. I think it's pretty good. There's a Bollywood-ish adaptation called Bride and Prejudice. It's not very Bollywood. It's bad, but has some enjoyable moments in it. So I would call myself a fan, not just of Pride and Prejudice, but of Jane Austen. Um, some of her works I like better than others. Pride and Prejudice is probably my favorite. And I think what's I like most about it, and this is my number one criticism of the comic, Pride and Prejudice is surprisingly funny. You get this sense oh. from reputation that the story is very stiff and proper and it's just people like bowing and curtsying to each other. And mm -hmm. the thing is, Jane Austen is a very clever writer and a lot of the wordplay is really quite engaging and charming and yes, even funny. And I think this adaptation loses a lot of it. I think as somebody who's never really read or seen any of the media and stuff like that for this, my biggest complaint is how dry it comes across. It kind of makes it hard to believe that this is, you know, based on well-loved Victorian novel, right? Uh, yeah, because there's really not a whole lot of charm. It's pretty straightforward. And I think there's maybe a better way to do it. I don't know. I really don't think that there's a better way to adapt this in a comic book because at least from my experience with this, it is just a lot of people standing around and talking and that doesn't necessarily make for an exciting comic, um, mm -hmm. especially when comics can do a lot 
for the visual medium that is different from, you know, movies, stuff like that. Yeah. And so maybe there is stuff that could be done to make it interesting, to make it worth the transition of the medium. But at least in this adaptation, it was very kind of straight. and or At least I think it was very mm-hmm. straight and like pretty dry for me. And I wasn't, I just wasn't enamored with it. Yeah. Really about halfway through the second issue, it really kind of became a, a chore. Uh-huh. No, I, I fully sympathize with that. Again, I actually quite like Pride and Prejudice. I would go so far as to call it a problematic fave because, boy, does the story <laughs> have problems in the 21st century. But for, you know, 19th century with sort of the, the understanding of class and other things that we, you know, know now are kind of messed up, but at the time were a little bit more commonplace... Uh, like knowing those conventions, there's actually a lot of really interesting and compelling romance in there. But yeah, no, I think what I kind of come down to with this story is that it's a very word-heavy story. And there are ways to write dialogue in comics to make it compelling. Look at any Bendis boardroom scene, right? It can be done. This story is not paced appropriately to to really capture all of that. For example, there is a sequence in, I want to say it's the second or third issue, Mr. Darcy asks Lizzie to dance, and they have this sort of like small talk where Lizzie says, the dancers seem quite animated tonight. Now, it's your turn to say something, Mr. Darcy. I talked about the dance. Now you ought to remark on the size of the room or the numbers of couples. And so it's this sort of, like, assumption of, like, we're just making small talk, and she's very snarkily kind of guiding him through the snar- the small talk, and he is mm-hmm. fairly wittily responding. It's a decent little back and forth, but the way it's presented in the comic is just flat actors standing on a page with these walls of text in the word balloons. It's like reading the worst Claremont story you've ever read. There's so much text. (laughs) Yeah. So without much of the charm of the acting, and I think that's the thing, like the movie adaptations of Pride and Prejudice are probably the best way to approach the text for a 21st century audience, much the same way that you can get a lot of enjoyment out of reading Shakespeare, but you should watch performers who know what they're saying perform Shakespeare because then even when the words kind of wash over you and you kind of lose the meaning of the individual words, the characters' performances still carry things. And I think that's an element that this adaptation lacks, but not always. One other quick example, um, and it's actually a moment where I think the comic actually does things well, is when Mr. Collins proposes to Lizzie and there are four horizontal panels of Mr. Collins going on at length about why he thinks this marriage is a good idea, how the Lady Catherine de Bourgh is in favor of it, and blah, 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 blah. And accompanying those four panels are four panels of Lizzie's face that the camera pulls closer and closer and closer, and she's just getting more and more disgusted. And it's like, Mm -hmm. that works! That works! It's not necessarily the funniest thing, but it is a storytelling choice that uses the strengths of the medium to get across what the characters are saying and feeling in a way that is unique to comics and wouldn't really work in a film. 
there's not enough of that though throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I think in the I think part of the conversation here too, really, or I don't know, it's definitely part of the conversation. I was gonna say the the bigger part of the conversation. That's a little presumptuous of me. The art, uh, you know, that's kind of a lot of the big thing of what do we get from making this in a comic? And you know, we talked about a lot of the layout, the adaptation, stuff like that. But also, this is well, this will be forever my number one. Uh, I don't know beef with comics. <laughs> Is I feel like there's such a betrayal in the cover art to the actual content of the mm-hmm. of the, of the books, right? Mm-hmm. And not mm-hmm. just not just the Sunny Lou covers, which are they're they're well drawn, they're beautiful. They have like I like soft... Sunny Lou a lot, by the way. Mm-hmm. I like him a yeah, lot. Yeah, soft, soft lines and colors, like they look fantastic. But they also have like these magazine layouts, mm-hmm. which would kind of lead you to believe that maybe there's a little bit of modernization going on here. Yeah, just just from the you know the cover art, right? And there isn't, there's none of that, and. I feel like this book, I mean, this book just needed to do something to have a little bit more of its own personality to add to this. Um, as, as it is now, it really doesn't feel like there's much of a reason for this other than to get, you know, another copy of Prejudice on people's shelves. Yeah. This is a quick aside. Sonny Lou has a great little, like, independent comic that he created called Malinky Robot that is weird and sweet and melancholy. It's adorable. It was in the flight anthologies uh, back in the day when those were a thing. If you can find a copy of that, I recommend reading it. It's really good. Nice. Okay. I want to compare how... Oh, no, I don't. I don't care to do this because that that would put me more and more into <laughs> dealing with Pride and Prejudice. But I, it would be interesting to compare how the home is described in the book how we see it in the bbc adaptation and i think that the kira knightley version also came out before this book because i feel like a lot of these drawing room scenes are laid out the same way that they are in some of the adaptations i i did not like this uh, and and it made me do something that i never thought I, I i i missed the i missed the different filmed versions of them mm-hmm. because <laughs> I was like, well, if we're going to have an adaptation, wouldn't it be better to have it performed? Like Steven said, you know, see it in a in a film medium that works better for now. Because I'm reading as much, I might as well be reading the book itself mm-hmm. and composing better pictures in my head. Because the art here, it is very stiff. I feel like they were drawing from photos in all of these. Mm-hmm. And if it's if it's a profile of a woman or straight on, it's okay. But it's more like, I'm going to draw every woman with sexy eyes yeah. and give them pretty hair. I honestly, my biggest complaint with the art of like the characters is how many times in the same panel people are looking, are supposed to be looking at each other as they're having a conversation, but they're really just staring off at a wall 30 degrees to the side of the other person's face. Yes, yes. And maybe in Regency era England, that's how people conversed, but I don't <laughs> think so. So I did a thing I don't normally Ugh. do. And I actually looked up uh, Hugo Petrus, the artist. And admittedly, nowadays, you know, it's, what, 15 years later, something like that, since he did... He's pretty decent. Like, he strikes me as... Like, he strikes me currently as a, a fairly decent artist. He Like, his work now reminds me of stuff that I might see from someone like Ryan Sook, or Terry Moore, or, you know, Frank Cho, even. But... Yeah, this early stuff of his is rough and it's stiff and the coloring unfortunately doesn't do it any favors. The coloring, yeah, I was not impressed with that. I, I would say that on some level everything is correct. You know, like the anatomy is not bad. 
The people look like people, and they look consistent. People look like people. The costumes are, you know, seem appropriate for the era. You know that like the nature scenes aren't bad. You know, but everyone's face is just off. It's it's not. I don't think Uncanny Valley is the right term for oh, it. I think it's the right term. Mm-hmm. Is that what? Because it, it, it seems like it's it's that kind of problem where they're going for really realistic and they miss the mark. Where we'll talk about you know Wizard of Oz in a bit. That's very playful and cartoonish, but feels more alive. Mm-hmm. Um, this uh, I the only thing that I'll give it credit for is that Mrs. Bennett gets uglier every issue, and I think <laughs> so does her character. So that works nicely. I really hate Mrs. Bennett. I think she sucks. Well, she's supposed to be ridiculous. I know she's supposed to, but I but I really hate her. And the cov- the covers, uh, yeah, it, it's it throws you off because you're lied to. But also, uh, the covers feel more like something that could be accomplished by taking some stock photos and doing some you know interesting Photoshop work less than works in their own right. You know, and, and I, I it it feels like a cheat to do that, and then to be you know swindled and open it up and be like, ugh. To be fair, I also think this is maybe only a few years. After they did the Trouble miniseries that we'll never get to read because it's not on the app. But, like, they also did... (laughs) They were trying to do that thing where they were trying to get, like, a line of comics to appeal to, like, young girls. And so, like, a big part of that design philosophy was to make a lot of the comic covers look like girls' magazines. And I feel like this is maybe on the way out from that trend. Yeah. I will say, issue two, Mr. Collins, the uh, pastor or whatever the title is for the Church of England. He, he looks different. He, he's consistently ugly. He <laughs> looks like a bad drawing of Fred Armisen or Tom Hanks in his second panel. He looks like a goober at the front door. Fred Armisen, that's actually who I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah, that Okay, it's not just me then. And then he looks completely different as he's like, oh, he just, he's just, you know, every, every panel is different. You know, he's consistently weird, but just, ugh. and and then it's like, okay, how do we know which one is Lizzie? Oh, the one with the sexy eyes. But other than <laughs> that, like, I get lost on which sister is which in some of these panels, you know, it's, ugh. Yeah, read the book. Don't read this. Read the book. Or if you have to do something, like, see the movie, but, like, if you're, you know, you're going to read something, read the actual book as opposed to this. Because you're going to be doing almost as much reading anyway. Mm-hmm. It feels, there are moments in here where it feels like, and I know because I looked it up a little bit because I was like, how much did they skim out of this? And obviously I, I never got, like, a complete count of it because at that point I really should just read the book or watch the miniseries or something. But it feels like there are not time jumps, but just condensation of events that were like stuff is just like well we're skipping over this or like we're, we're gonna condense a few things here i i don't know how how accurate is that both of you is that feel like there's a lot i've never read the novels steven they feel abrupt but like the major scenes are all here and interestingly yeah. they are not always done the justice that i think they deserve or rather they are not always explored in sufficient detail to really get across how important, how significant they are. Like, Lizzie and Mr. Wickham, theirs is not just a, like, passing acquaintance. She's kind of taken with him. She kind of likes him. And I don't think you get that sense from the comic that she is maybe romantically interested and then he moves on and she's like, ah, oh well. Uh, not realizing that she was in fact dodging a bullet. So 
yeah, like there is something to the pacing here where the scenes are present, but they're so condensed and they're so packed in that it's a chore to get through them. When you're reading a comic, you should be able to like have the art kind of guiding you through and the text, the, the word balloons are creating the rhythm of the conversation and all of that seems to get lost. And then there are these very abrupt scene transitions that probably would have been chapter breaks in the novel, but in a comic, they just feel really like hastily thrown in because we have to get to the next major story beat. It's 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 an adaptation that struggles, unfortunately. And yeah, yeah, again, kind of a shame because I know you know Petrus has gone on and he's I think put out work that I think is pretty impressive, at least looking at it outside of the context of the story because I haven't read the other comics he's done. Nancy Butler. A lot of DC work, a lot of covers work. He actually strikes me as someone who'd be a very good covers creator mm -hmm. um, with, you know, really solid colorist behind him. Nancy Butler, like, this is what she's known for. She's written some romance novels, and she's adapted a couple of Jane Austen stories to comics. She did the Sense and Sensibility comic, which was illustrated by Sunny Lou. I haven't read that. I just know it exists. And I'm a little concerned about reading it because... I don't like Sense and Sensibility as much as I like Pride and Prejudice, but uh, it's, yeah, it is a bit of a disappointment. Speaking as someone who likes the story while acknowledging that the story itself is a heckin' awful mess. A friend of mine pointed <laughs> out once that Elizabeth Bennet warms to Mr. Darcy once she sees how, you know, fancy his house is, and yeah. she's not wrong about that. <laughs> Yeah, that does bug me because Darcy is like, oh, Mr. Darcy, oh, oh, oh. I think if you put a suit on a bag of wet sand, you would have <laughs> the same, there's not much difference. It's, you know, oh, he's he's just, you know, standing in the corner there and doesn't like anybody. It's like, well, so what of that? You know, I don't know why everyone, you know, gives a crap about Darcy. And then we see his, you know, manner and his bank account. I've actually been to the two locations they used, um, uh, Lime Park and Chatsworth. Worth. Both of them stood in for Pemberley in two different adaptations. Gorgeous houses, absolutely incredible. Um, so yeah, I mean, I could I, I I could fall in love with Darcy once I'd seen those scenes. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But uh, that that I will also admit that that makes me a little shallow, and I don't know if uh, <laughs> I don't know if uh, Lizzie uh, Bennett should be held in such high esteem. <laughs> can can I, can I tell you why I like Darcy? Because I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, I've been really jonesing to revisit Pride and Prejudice for a little while, and so I'm actually really glad that Aldo recommended this, and now I'm probably just going to have to watch the BBC miniseries anyway, somehow. I'll find time. I can neglect my child for six hours. Um, <laughs> Mr. Darcy <laughs> reminds me of me in a way that is not flattering. <laughs> I've revisited this memory recently, and it's it's embarrassing to talk about, so I'm going to do it in public on a podcast. Thankfully, nobody listens to us. So... <laughs> this is the episode that goes viral. <laughs> <laughs> Here's how I suck. Mr. Darcy's, like... Mr. Darcy's defining moment is he confesses his love to Elizabeth Bennet by telling her, I love you despite how broke you are, despite how ridiculous your family is, despite how embarrassing your sisters are in public, despite the fact that falling in love with you would bring shame upon me and upon my family for generations upon generations. And it's like this deeply unflattering proposal, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, he's... 
somewhat justified in saying this, because, and this is something I think the, the comic doesn't really get into, but the Bennets are an embarrassing family. And Lizzie puts up with a lot of it and encourages a lot of it. And Darcy, you know, is kind of a little justified in calling her out for some of this. But at the same time, you say that sort of thing, you shouldn't expect a yes in response to your marriage proposal, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So when I was in college, I dated a girl uh, and <laughs> told her that I was really happy to be with her and I quite liked being with her even though I thought I could get someone more attractive. Oh. You took... Steven. Steven. <laughs> How, did you use those words? I didn't not use those words. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my yeah. gosh. And wow. The, here's the embarrassing thing, though. It took me literally years to figure out why that was bad. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. You know what, though? I can relate. I've done a lot of self-reflection over the last couple of years over who I was in high school and my early college years. I, I, I don't think I ever did anything that bad, but... <laughs> <laughs> Not as bad as Stephen, but... <laughs> Still pretty cringy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's hard. No, and it, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I was also reminiscing about all of my three past romances before I met Brittany. I was <laughs> not a Casanova, this guy. I was talking about it with a friend of mine who, like, back in high school had a reputation for being kind of a womanizer because he dated a lot of people and broke mm-hmm. a lot of hearts and often did so in ways that were pretty... He dumped a girl in the middle of our junior prom. Oof. Like... between dancing and mini golf, he dumped her. It was, it was bad. Um, but the thing is we were talking about our relationships and he was like, except for one, maybe I could go through each relationship and tell you what I learned about the person that I wanted to be with and the person that I wanted to be. And I was like, okay, for each of my relationships that I was in, I could tell you the girl's name and that I thought she was pretty. And it just like, (laughs) I don't know. It made me realize that he was getting a lot out of these interpersonal relationships and all of my past relationships before meeting Brittany were very shallow. And that wasn't on the girls, that was on me. So the thing that I like about Mr. Darcy is that he does this and it's obviously a ridiculously dumb thing, but once he finally figures out that he screwed up like that, he takes great pains to try to repair the damage that he did without drawing attention to it. And so Mr. Darcy, for me, is like this sort of inspirational story that's like, you can be a tactless goober and screw stuff up, but getting over that and kind of redeeming yourself is hard work, but it's not impossible work. And the fact that he puts in that, that effort is the aspect of it that's inspiring to me. So I quite like Mr. Darcy as a character. I think Lizzie is a little bit silly, but she makes up for it by being basically the 19th century Daria Morgendorfer, and I think that's great. <laughs> See, if you had, if someone had early on explained like, hey, 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 Lizzie's like Daria, so just deal with her, you know, and, and see see that uh, side of the character, then I probably would have had a better time of it. Mm, yeah, it's, I, uh, it's the acerbic wit that really carries Pride and Prejudice, and it just doesn't land in the adaptation. Anyway. Yeah. No, I, I, um, 
I mean, I've probably done that particular one. No, but also, <laughs> like, if we we wouldn't have to dig very far into my embarrassment sandbox to find something. I I have moments where I'll remember something from the past and just kind of and like shake and be like oh and and you know I'm glad that I live in a different state from a lot of people that I went to, with, uh, to school <laughs> with. You know, now it's just like okay, we don't have to worry about that because if I saw you in real life, I would just have to jump off of a bridge. So you know, and then family who embarrass saw these embarrassments well they have to love you unconditionally right so they just they no deal with me being... no they don't no? no you don't oh okay <laughs> i'll tell you that right now you don't have to love anything if you don't want to uh, sorry are we sharing more lines from your tinder profile now or <laughs> exactly <laughs> well done i'm real special i like marvel movies and i don't love anything i don't have to <laughs> Diamond in the rough right there. That's the next line. That is, you know, that is interesting. The parts that I like Darcy the best is when he's just, you know, at home and being generous with uh, Elizabeth's uncle. Like, oh, come fishing. Yeah, you're great. Let's uh, let's be fishing buddies. And it's like, okay, okay. He has other interests besides, like, being a tool bag at uh, dances, you know. So that's nice. And he's a good brother, so. Yeah, he's you know. a good brother. He is a good friend to uh, Mr. Bingham does some dumb stuff but he is tries like and that's wickham no not wickham wickham's the tool bag bingley bingley excuse me i did say bingham you're right uh i told you these (laughs) these adaptations are just combining characters one minute he's yelling at his friend and another minute he's buddy helping there's only two daughters in this one (laughs) (laughs) that's the thing about mr darcy though he's he's like awkward he's not like a bad person he's just socially quite inept Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't hit that part in history when, like, you know, money kind of smooths over those things where it's like, well, he doesn't have to, you know, socialize because he's loaded. I mean, a little bit of that comes into yeah. play there, but it's not like, you know, he doesn't know what to do with himself, so he builds rockets and buys an entire social media platform. Oh, gosh. <laughs> New legal eagle video going to be talking about all of the legal troubles of Elon Musk. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm excited. <sighs> Anything else we have to say about Pride and Prejudice? Not really, just a little, kind of a disappointing uh, bit of adaptation. Yeah. You know. If it if it helps, the uh, BBC version, although it is quite lengthy, Jennifer Ely is very nice. She was in King's Speech. Um, she was married to Jeffrey Rush. Also, her mother is Rosemary Harris, who played um, Aunt May in the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. A little oh. bit of movie connection. Oh there. my goodness, I didn't put that together. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know that that her mom was Rosemary Harris. I'm gonna. Have um, to... I didn't know that she was American because she's um, like half uh, half American, half American, half British, and I oh, I thought she only did English uh, English shows and movies. Oh, so right. half American, half British, all white. <laughs> <laughs> she's did. She was in Zero Dark Thirty too, but like you know that doesn't help your I case, just, John. The, the, <laughs> I don't know if she was married. Anyway, whatever. Anyways, fine. Yeah. fine. No, that's cool. I like yeah. that actress. I, at some point, I'll have to, I'll have to, you know, consume a, like a decent adaptation or the book. I'm actually, I'm, I'm not gonna lie to myself. I'm never gonna read the book. At some point, I should just watch a good movie or the BBC series of Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, um, I can say Donald Sutherland is is very good. 
Um, and the, the thought that Mr. Mr. Bennett and the other version, I don't know the actor's name off the top of my head. He's good. Um, Mrs. Bennett is in, intolerable. Uh, the BBC version, and I can't remember her being particularly annoying in Kira Knightley. Mr. Darcy, Colin Firth, or the other dude who plays Mr. Darcy, either way is still pretty wooden. Um, speaking of wooden, nope, that's not going to work. It's like, how can no. I get from wood to straw to scarecrow to, no, it's not going to work. Anyway, so trying to get out of this conversation as much as, you know, anybody really wants to get out of Kansas. <laughs> there we go. That was it. Which is actually antithetical because the whole point of the story is she's trying to get back to Kansas. Yeah. Why? I don't know. But anyway, so our second book that we read was the Marvel Comics adaptation of The Wizard of Oz. The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, specifically based on the original book by Elf Baum. Or is that Frank L? El Frank. El Frank. El Frank. El Franco. Uh, <laughs> uh, this adaptation's uh, the writer for this is Eric Schenauer. Art by Scott Young. Colors by Jean-Francois Beaulieu. Letters by Jeff Eckleberry. And uh, yeah, so this is an eight-issue adaptation. It's a little bit longer. Not really, but it is a, like technically a longer adaptation than Pride and Prejudice, which was about five issues. Mm-hmm. And this follows the original book, as you would expect from book adaptation i feel like that's kind of worth pointing out because so many things references in it things about wizard of oz are typically a reference to the movie nowadays not necessarily the book i remember reading a little bit of the book back when i was i think in junior high i don't i didn't read the whole book but just a part of it i think part of it was like an adaptation exercise or something like that where we were comparing a scene from the movie to a scene from the book but there's quite a bit that happens here the story's a little bit longer obviously than what we see in the book uh there's some differences you know between those two most of that most of the original text carries over here but unlike Pride of Prejudice we do get a lot of the art doing a lot of the heavy lifting but a really quick synopsis of The Wizard of Oz for anybody who hasn't seen the movie in you know a while uh Dorothy lives on a farm in Kansas during a tornado her house gets lifted and transported out to this magical world where her house flattens a witch and kills her she takes her silver shoes and is told to by a good witch to go on this journey to go meet the Wizard of Oz who can get her back to Kansas on this journey she meets a scarecrow uh, who was born maybe a couple days ago and is not a very good scarecrow who wants and he wants a brain he wants to be smart uh, they also meet a tin woodsman who used to be a person and kind of macabrely was you know chopped parts of himself off for the most part like and Vader yeah and he's he joins them on this journey to help to essentially stay oiled and to get a heart uh, because he would much rather have a heart than a brain. But as a person who's had both, he would love to have a heart again. And they meet a lion who is a coward, but doesn't really ever have to fight anything because he's the biggest and loudest in the room at any given time. So they join Dorothy on this journey. They get to Oz, which they are given the mission to go kill the other wicked witch. And they go, and they are torn apart by these flying monkeys. The beautiful, beautiful, everything in here is beautifully drawn. I was going to say these beautiful flying monkeys, because they're so well drawn, but so is everything else in this book. Uh, the scarecrow is torn <laughs> apart, the tin man is dropped at the bottom of a ravine, and the lion is caged up. And Dorothy is made a slave by the Wicked Witch. 
uh, during an encounter in which the Wicked Witch is trying to steal the shoes off of Dorothy, Dorothy retaliates and gets her, throws a bucket of water, and that's how she kills her. And they travel back to Oz, and they, you know, in, back to the wizard about, you know, him fulfilling his promises and being, and, you know, essentially having the brains, the heart, and the courage, and Dorothy taken home. We find out he's a charlatan, he's just another guy from Omaha, which isn't that far from Kansas. And, and uh, you know, we find out that he's kind of just been, you know, pulling the wool over everybody's eyes, almost literally in this sense. And the Emerald City actually isn't emerald. He just makes everybody wear green goggles so they think it's all emerald. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, so he he kind of tricks, not really, like he, he lets these characters believe that he's giving them the things they want, even though he has proven and explained to them that they have they have already achieved the things that they wanted or you know why it's better to not have those things either way but he kind of gives them their things he fills the scarecrow's head with nails the tin man gives him a little like sack of fluff a heart and he gives he gives the lion some water and tells him it's cursed uh he's going to take dorothy back home in a hot air balloon but uh, she loses Toto kind of at the last second. And going to retrieve him, the last rope breaks and he goes off by himself in this hot air balloon. And she decides that she's going to, kind of with the help and advice of her friends and somebody else, they decide that they're going to travel north to go visit the Good Witch. And she helps them um, kind of go back to their respective places as a lot of them have essentially become kings and leaders in a lot of these little towns and areas that they've passed through. So now that they've gone up there, uh, she returns Dorothy back home and takes and uses the flying monkeys to return all these characters, kind of these places they want to be. They all now have kind of a purpose in life other than just hanging out in the woods, I guess. That was a really a bridge thing. There's quite a few things that happen in here. We, there, we get like a backstory on the flying monkeys. We get a backstory essentially on everybody. Everybody's stories here are pretty fleshed out. And yeah. So what did you guys think? Loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, I had flipped through as soon as I had a phone that had an e-reader on it. Um, this... I guess had entered the public domain and so I was like, oh, okay, what's the original like? And had, you know, gone through and read a little bit. My nephews listened to the audiobook versions of it too. There's a lot, you know, we we quickly learn that there are quadlings and Twinkie or Winkies and all the, like every, you know, corner of the map has its own little people mm-hmm. who have their own little color and the, you know, their own little ways. Um, the Kalida, um, you know, aren't meant in the movie and very cool here in the book. I don't, I don't think we meet the mice people either. I didn't mention those, no, but when, yeah. they, when they pass out in the field of flowers, they, they're they saved or they're helped by these little, by this mouse queen. So very interest, interesting to see that. I really liked it. I thought we got a lot from Scotty Young's drawing, which I'm always, you know, really, really like it. Mm-hmm. Do you think there was, I don't know if it was the way it was scanned, the way it was painted, whatever, but there's an odd texture that you kind of see, especially in the first issue, almost like a, a texture of the paper that it, it was kind of distracting where, you know, on purpose sometimes when you're working digitally, you could add like a, a parchment texture or something to it. This, I don't know if it was just how the watercolors, you know, warped the paper or whatever, but it's kind of, it was, it was distracting to me um, to see this. I'm trying to pull up an example. Oh, I, I thought it was intentional. I didn't mind it at all. Mm. I, I I know I don't know if what they were going for maybe I don't know it works sometimes but not in this so much I thought the inks could have been a little bit tighter as well but overall 
you know, delightful character design. Ty Inks on a Scotty Young? John. <laughs> John. <laughs> the Flying Monkeys were great. The uh, Wicked Witch of the West, when we get to see, like, her big, wide, evil grin with all of her crooked teeth and everything, really scary. The, the best of all, um, I love the different versions that we get of the wizard. The mm-hmm. cover to issue four, in particular, is really cool. You know, how he presents himself to each character is different, depending on what he thinks will intimidate them um, or be attractive to them, and very cool. Mm-hmm. Some of those designs, especially, like, the floating head, remind me of Bill Sienkiewicz. Like, that could have been straight out of New Mutants. Mm. Very good. Yeah, I kept expecting to see little nods to the film, but this feels like it was, you know, really pulling from the source material. Um, just beautiful and making making you feel like, yeah, yeah, this is this is another world. I actually really appreciated how much it did not reference the movie. Yeah, I think I think it's maybe a little jarring if that's only ever, if that's been your only you know exposure to the story. How much of that really isn't here, and how much of it that is here does not look like the film version stuff at all. Mm-hmm. And the only the only reason why there would be a similarity is because the film was going off of you know the story in the first place. Yeah. Why why is Dorothy wearing a blue you know blue and white or whatever? Because that is mentioned here. Which I do like that in here it has like this coincidental like importance right like they say which mm-hmm. white is the color for good witches and blue is for the not the munchkins but whatever the first peoples that she meets are like it's well, those were the munchkins so right yeah yeah the first group yeah were they called much i didn't think they were been a little minute mm-hmm. but anyway so like you know there's a little bit of that importance quote unquote to it it's coincidental and everything but it's something that doesn't get addressed in the movie as far as i remember that's just what she happens to be wearing and it's like you know it's cute and also i think dorothy here is as adorable absolutely oh yeah um oh, yeah. cannot go one second further without gushing over the character design for the Scarecrow, especially after Mm -hmm. he gets his brains, when all the little (laughs) tacks and pins and whatever are poking out of the top of his head. Scotty Young draws that as like the most metal thing I have ever seen in a children's story. It is so good. I love it. I love it so much. Mm -hmm. I also love the Tin Man, the the Woodsman. I I really like his design. I like that he is... Like an older fellow. He has like the mustache and everything. You know, he is kind of the older one of the group and he speaks like it. And I love that. I love that it's reflected not just in the way he talks, but also in the design. Because the Scarecrow does look and seem young, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he's naive. He was born yesterday, really. <laughs> born sexy and, yesterday. Oh. <laughs> I love how enormous the lion is, uh, too. He's a big fluff ball. Love it. Yeah. I love Toto as well. <laughs> Yeah, like that's the thing, yeah. is we could literally do this all evening because all of the character <laughs> designs are really good. Yeah. 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 I was surprised by the uh talking about character designs. I love the people who shoot their heads at the end, like towards the end when they're trying to get to the good witch and like they stretch oh, out yeah, the and shoot their heads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was great. That was wonderful. Yeah. The only real nitpick that I have about the art, and this is like, be, let's be 100%. This is a nitpick. Um, Dorothy gets a kiss from the Good Witch of the North, and that, like, leaves a mark on her that is supposed to protect her. And she wears that mark for the rest of the book, and it's there. Like, there's a very purposeful, like, circle of light on her forehead that is just faint enough and just subtle enough that you think it's an art mistake. 
It's not, but it's there. Are you serious? Because I don't think I ever really noticed it. It's there. They they reference it. The characters say, "Oh, you've been marked by a, a good witch." Yeah. And I'm like, what? if you say so. But I, but I never saw it, so I always thought it was like a magical mark, right? Something that the magical people yeah. there would know, would would see yeah. and feel. But I never noticed it in, in the art. That's yep. It's there. It's intentional, but it's. Subtle enough that it almost looks like an accident, and as a reader, it makes me second guess myself the whole time. Was that intentional? Maybe it wasn't. It. Was that intentional? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, but you know, at the end of the day, it's uh, that's not a significant complaint. It, it really isn't. Good book, well drawn, well adapted. There's there's a lot of text in it still, so in some ways, it is kind of similar to like you know, the Pride and Prejudice adaptation we just read, where a little wordy at points. But the difference is that this is a story that was designed to be read aloud to children. So the bits of text that are incorporated here, they still have some of that fun, that whimsy to them. Yeah, I think, and this is probably more a criticism on the book itself rather than this adaptation, maybe it is a criticism on the adaptation because they probably could have cut this out. But <laughs> for the first half of the book, or actually even for most of the book, it does get a little tiring to hear everybody's character motivation at least twice an issue. Very true, very true. I don't know that I agree. Actually, I find the repetition weirdly comforting. And that's that's fair. I For me, for me, it's something where it's like, but that's also I'm an experienced, seasoned adult reader. <laughs> I say that as if I'm above this. I'm not. I am not above this. But, but at least for me, I'm, I'm really used to like books that, you know, I guess not for kids, right? Because in, in a more adult-oriented book or, you know, older-leaning, you get a character motivation. And, like, that's kind of it. You're maybe re- reminded about it once or This is, at its heart and its full purpose, is a kid's book. It makes absolute sense to repeat that and make sure that, like, that is, you know, kind of coming across. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of like complaining about all of the rhyming in a Dr. Seuss book. Listen, I'm, <laughs> I'm entirely invested in, in the story about this man who does not want green eggs. In, but does he have to say it to every other page? <laughs> I will say that if you... If it's not, you know, clear why you're repeating it, it sounds like you're talking down to your audience. Something I experienced when I went to the uh, to see Top Gun Maverick, they explained their their mission five times, at least five uh-huh. times, and it's the movie was an absolute piece of. Cr- I did not enjoy it. What? And I thought even oh did not enjoy it. I thought maybe the dogfighting will make up for you know, what I know will be a lame story. No. No, no. I it loved Maverick. I thought it was amazing. Okay. You're the only person I've ever heard say they didn't like it, John. That's surprising to I me. I am not wrong. I will die on this hill. And you of all people I would have expected to like it. That's the funny thing. I I I was going in going like people have people have enjoyed it so why not and like you know the old one I roll my eyes at a little bit but the like the like I said the dogfighting is still fun and you like you want to hop into a cockpit of a you know fighter jet at the end of it but the new one is absolute dog crap and we can talk more later about it um, I did not enjoy it and so repetition of your theme of your character motivations of the mission to uh, strategically climb up to the top avoiding the surface guns and then getting down diving down in to make the bombing run and then climbing back out again all of that garbage <laughs> yeah uh, good for young readers and insulting to adults 
Oh no, John! Stop! Stop! No, I'm not gonna partake of propaganda. <laughs> it was a great okay. film. It was a great film. I'm not here. I'm not Which here was otherwise. also propaganda. It was. It was absolutely military. Okay, propaganda. as long as we're clear on that, it absolutely is. Yeah, the old one, as as was the old one. Uh, yeah, as is eighty percent of all, or ninety five percent of all films that have the military in them. Anyway, anyways, I absolutely loved. It. I think here's what's interesting because. Mm-hmm. In the last... Well, no, that's not true. It's not like a new thing to adapt books into film or other media. Uh, I used to think that it was only a successful adaptation if it was true and faithful 100% to the source material. Um, Lord of the Rings came out, and I was initially... I'll admit, in like the first weekend, distracted by a few little things. Like, where was Tom Bombay? I, yeah. I swear, I swear, if you tell me that Lord of the Rings trilogy is a piece of crap, John, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get in my car. <laughs> no, there are lines that you don't cross. Um, though I will say that all the memes since the movies have come out have almost like wrecked it because I'll go back and watch it now and I'm like, oh my gosh, every frame of this movie has been made into a joke. <laughs> it's elevated it to me. <laughs> Actually, I say I say that I haven't I haven't rewatched the movies actually in a while, so I can't say oh, it's yeah. elevated it. But I yeah, I I watched the crap out of Two Towers because I I it was one of the first like you know mm-hmm. DVD box sets that I bought on my own. You know when I was in college, I like got out and I was like yeah, that was their opening night. Like mm-hmm. you know got there right before the store closed because you had to buy. Eh, back in the day, you had to go to a store to buy things. <laughs> anyway. No, that's not true. Adaptations don't have to get every single... Don't have to make sure that every line of dialogue is in there. You really should make sure that you have some key moments because that's what made the original source material successful. But I think if you're getting through the message, if you're getting through character relationships, if you are conveying the same message... Uh, then you're all right. Wizard of Oz was made to be read aloud, and so how much of that can you cut before it becomes an entirely different animal altogether, and as opposed to just a good adaptation? Mm-hmm. It's a it's a fine line. Um, I prefer what we got with Wizard of Oz as opposed to Pride and Prejudice in the comic medium because it still works, even though yes, there are a lot of word bubbles and it gets a lot, it gets really wordy and repetitive, mm-hmm. but again, you know, still works. Yeah. I think for me, what really works in The Wizard of Oz is, yes, it is wordy. Especially especially when she's in towns, when she's talking to people. Like, it is wordy. And there are a lot of balloons. Or not balloons. There are a lot of exposition boxes to really kind of let you read what she's thinking or how she's feeling. Which is fine, because sometimes the art does need a little bit of help in kind of really conveying a lot more of those intricate emotion cross, right? But I do appreciate that for a lot of this book, I wish it was more of it, but for a lot of this book, it lets the art do a lot of the heavy lifting for setting the scenery for setting or for settings really for for any time they go into a place it doesn't do the thing where it's like they walk into a into like a beautiful field of flowers whose beauty cannot be described by words right like it doesn't really necessarily yeah. say that they're not stan leeing <laughs> yeah it shows you this amazing beautiful field of flowers it tells you that they've been walking through this beautiful field of flowers for a while blah 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 right like it does explain that but like the very beginning of the book and i feel like maybe this was a little inspired by the movie or i don't know maybe the book just starts out this way there's not a lot of words in the beginning while she's still in kansas and the art style is, you know, the the colors a little bit more muted. Kansas looks barren and boring and terrible, like it is. And ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've had to drive through it too, I see. <laughs> <laughs> Once or twice, yeah. <laughs> but uh, 
Driving you know, through it, Kansas it, will make you miss Nebraska, which is something also like why would you, yeah. But it it lets the art convey that right. Like it doesn't necessarily have to describe that. Like, you know, Dorothy lives here. It's boring. It mm-hmm. sucks. Look how drab it is. But <laughs> but yeah. So I wish there was a little bit more of that of letting the art really do the talking. But for mm-hmm. the most part, I don't have a lot of complaints. I do have some which are nitpicks on the writing, not necessarily the art. But, I mean, kind of like John was saying, though, right? It's an adaptation, so, like, it is a juggling act of, like, how much do you keep? And I think Wizard of Oz stands up as an adaptation better than Pride and Prejudice because the wordiness, coupled with the really evocative pictures, reads like a fancy illustrated children's book. Mm -hmm. Whereas Pride and Prejudice reads like a... Bad, I can't, I I wish I could come up. Like a Chris Claremont comic (laughs) that lacks the joy and the drama. Boy, we went from singing his praises last week to crapping on him this week. He's a wordy guy. The strength of Claremont is not just in the words that he uses, though. It's also in the drama, the the high emotions, The the deep, the purpose. And some of that has it has to be said. Some of that is carried by the art and mm-hmm. the Pride and Prejudice story. The text is carrying the whole thing. The art is just there. It's barely serviceable. And again, I don't mean to crap on the artist himself, who I believe is is you know really talented and has gone on to do some pretty impressive stuff. It's just it 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 struggles there. But Wizard of Oz doesn't have that. I will say that Pride and Prejudice, I didn't mean to say this, but I totally spaced it. Pride and Prejudice kind of feels like a paycheck for the artist. A little or like bit. Almost on a di- or almost like an audition piece, right? Like if you can do this, like this is Pride and Prejudice, we know it'll sell. If you can do this, you know, we'll move you on to other stuff. Yeah. But anyways, that was, that was you know, 20 minutes ago, a different <laughs> I wanted to real quick talk about <laughs> adaptation, because this is something that I think about a lot. Yes, please do. Because adaptation is difficult because everybody wants different things from it, right? Like like John said, you, a lot of people really want faithfulness to the source material. And that creates this really difficult thing because truthfully, I don't think readers want adaptations to be 100% faithful. They want to recapture the feeling. And your mileage may vary whether an adaptation succeeds in that or not. I loved the Little Women movie from a couple years ago. Greta Gerwig, Saoirse Ronan, I think's her name, Laura Dern. Fantastic. It's, it's... Florence Pugh. Florence Pugh was in it, yeah. Florence Pugh was in it. She was great. I loved it. It, to me, captured so much of what I want to see in movies. But a friend of mine who loves Little Women was offended by it. Just deeply upset by it. Said it was one of the worst movies she'd ever seen, and I cannot... Like, the two of us cannot get on the same page because we are bringing different sort of expectations to it. And every reader or viewer or anything like that is going to have that baggage. And so to me, I think that makes the challenge of adaptation one of, can you justify this thing existing when the original that evokes such strong feelings already exists? Knowing that you're not going to win everyone over. Therefore, don't try. I feel like, not to keep going back to Pride and Prejudice, I think the Pride and Prejudice adaptation that we read today was trying to please fans of Pride and Prejudice. The, to the point where, like, it, it, again, it really falls flat. The Wizard of Oz is 
trying to bring the story into the unique space of comics and let the voice of these creators, in particular Scotty Young, really shine. And because it's got that sort of focus on Young's art, and let's be 100% real here, the, re the reason to buy this book, to read this book, is for all of the Scotty Young art. Not that the story yes. is bad or anything like that. It's not. We've been gushing about it for a little bit. But the reason to buy this is the Scotty Young art. So the fact that there's this creator who is not L. Frank Baum, who has this very strong stamp on this book that makes it a joy to read, even if you love the source material or the more famous MGM movie, that makes it a successful adaptation, in my mind, even if you don't like it. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. And I think, at least for me, adaptations is such a, you know, it's a tricky thing. Because for me, I, I really do swing in, like, one of the two directions for that. It's If it's not going to be anything special, if you're just... Make it as accurate to the material. Make it as accurate to the source, or else just don't. But most of the time, nine times out of ten, I want an adaptation to swing for the fences. I really want it to either justify the, the, the new creator's vision... Or to justify the medium. And for me, I think one of the perfect examples for that is the Speed Racer movie. Which is a movie I love to death and back and will always sing its praises. But kind of like you were talking about how, you know, book readers don't necessarily want a straight adaptation. They want to recapture the magic. That's what that movie does. Is it captures the magic of what think or you imagine remembering Speed Racer as. And, and for me, that's kind of the point of it. It's not... I mean, it is accurate. Like, the original show and, you know, comics are not as fanciful. And the movie really does an amazing job with the medium. Because it, it is, like, CGI heavy. So there's a lot of amazing things. It completely justifies. And, you know, I... Like you just mentioned, and not to keep beating the the poor... <laughs> Pride and Prejudice horse down a little bit anymore. Um, I don't. I don't. I don't know that it, it necessarily justifies its existence. Mm -hmm. And this this book absolutely does. Absolutely. John, do you want to soliloquize for a bit? To be <laughs> or not to be. Anyway, so we're gonna rank these books. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I I wonder if. No, you know what? No. Be I was going to say, would we have liked Wizard of Oz as much if we hadn't preceded it, you know, or read along with, you know, read Pride and Prejudice along with it, but I still think I would have loved it regardless of whatever we paired with it. Um, the art is that good. It is, it is unique and special. So much fun. I owned three of the Oz books before I purged my comics collection a few years back. I have loved these books from the first minute I saw them. So I don't think this is just, um, <laughs> at least personally, like I read this well before. I, I think I read the Oz books, the Oz comics before I ever read Pride and Prejudice, the novel. <laughs> so I, I think this is good. I, I don't yeah. think that we're just like, you know, it's, it's not just good by comparison. I think it's legitimately good. And in fact, I'm, I think you're going to be surprised where I want to rank this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also, I mean, I've been looking forward to reading this book. It's just a book I never made time for. But this was partly an excuse to read this book. And I'm, I'm happy I forced you guys to read it with me. <laughs> <laughs> and if, if Pride and Prejudice if Pride and Prejudice was the was the cost of entry, I will I will read Sense and Sensibility again to read the second one of these. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, now we've now we've established precedent. To be fair, there's only two Jane Austen books, I think, that have been adapted comics. Oh good. It's not like a trick where there's multiple Marvel zombie <laughs> books. Okay, good. Every Thanksgiving we're gonna read Jane Austen. 
Actually, I would not mind reading a Wizard of Oz for every Thanksgiving. <laughs> Dude, we've got more of them. There are six of them total. Yeah, and I've only I only think I ever read three of them. So I would not be opposed to going on and reading more of those Oz books. They're very good. Yeah, there are six adaptations. There are tw- there are twelve novels by L. Frank Baum, and there's like twenty something more that were written after his passing. Yeah. There is a ton of official Wizard of Oz books. As far as these comics go, Scotty Young only did thinks that the six. Yeah. Assuming he did all six of them. I'm actually not sure he did. I know he did the first couple, but I don't know beyond that. Anyway, that's a that's a conversation, I think, for another day. I think now it's probably time to move on to the ranking. So, we currently have 218 stories on our list. For comparable items, there aren't many. We have a couple of adaptations. Uh, the first one, the obvious one that comes to mind, is the Star Wars New Hope manga which is currently at number 103, slightly higher than the middle of our list. I don't think I'm going to blow anyone's minds when I say one of our books probably goes higher than that and the other one goes lower. But let's start with Pride and Prejudice. Where does Pride and Prejudice go? Uh, definitely below a New Hope manga. Oh, way below. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm struggling. There were no lightsabers in Darvish. I would absolutely love a, a, a Star Wars Pride and Prejudice now that we've made that joke. <laughs> I mean, that's basically the prequel trilogy. <laughs> Thousand pounds every year. <laughs> a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, it was a universal truth that a man in goodwill <laughs> is in need of... It is a truth universally acknowledged that a man in possession of the Force must be in want of a lightsaber. <laughs> <laughs> This is a rough one, because I feel like... Pride leads to prejudice. (laughs) Prejudice leads to hate. (laughs) Hate leads to love, because it's a rom-com. I keep going down, because it's like, at least with a lot of these comics that we have down here, like the Marvel Zombies books, there's a reason for them to exist. I don't like them, but (laughs) I like... I feel like Pride and Prejudice does the opposite of what it's supposed to do, which is I, I genuinely think it discourages people from reading or visiting other adaptations of the material. Um, and that's maybe too harsh. But, like, this is probably not where I want to put it. My floor is Eminem Punisher. You know, but you're not wrong, though, right? Because how thick with text this book is, it really does lead, especially for me, like, even John, John expressed it uh, at some point, in this book, you feel like, I should just be reading. Yeah. It does give you that, you know, what am I doing here? There's It's so thick with text. I'm, stuff is kind of rushed, a little condensed. I'm, I feel like I'm missing something here. Yeah. Why am I not just reading the novel? It does do that, unfortunately. I think that's a little bit too harsh, though, because that would put it beneath Sin's past, which, you know, uh, say what you want about Pride and Prejudice, at least it's not rapey. <laughs> Here's what I'll say. I, I don't know if I would call it bad, but mm-hmm. it ain't good. Yeah, and that's true. And I don't know what section of the... I, like, th- that might be where we're looking right now, like Eminem Punisher. Like, that's a good floor. I would put it higher than that, but I don't think it can go much higher. I want to put it higher because I feel like I'm being mean, and I don't think this book deserves people being mean to it the way that the stuff at the bottom of our list... The, the stuff at the bottom of our list is down there because it feels good to be mean to those books. Because they're, they're offensive, they're, some of yeah, them. Yeah, this is not offensive, so it feels bad to be mean to it. That So we should put it higher. So for me, at the point where I feel like a book starts being offensive to me, is right below Brute Force. 
Yeah, brute force wasn't offensive. It has animals and mech suits and doesn't really do anything amazing with them. When I was originally looking at Marvel Comics number one here, which we have at number 202, I read it as Marvel Comics 1000, and I thought, that's an anthology, that was pretty good, and then remembered, oh yeah, Marvel Comics 1 was written in a problematic time. <laughs> yeah. So, my, my ceiling is definitely Ghost Rider, because that at least is an origin story. Yeah, there's a quick pivot to Satan, but, <laughs> you know, it's still... Which honestly, which honestly, I feel like any of the books below Ghost Rider would probably benefit from a quick pivot to Satan. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> well, the, One More Day does. Yeah, that's part of the problem, though, right? I guess, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's the problem. As you'll recall, <laughs> Mephisto is the best part of One More Day. So, hey. I thought we agreed Doctor Strange was the best part of One More Day. <sighs> no, I think it was Mephisto. Whatever. It, it's bad. But it's, yeah. Um, I would put it, yeah, I think below Brute Force and above Marvel Comics 1 seems fair. I feel bad for that placement because I feel like we're really mean to Marvel Comics number 1. But also, of the two, I don't know. I'm fine with that. I'm exhausted <laughs> thinking about that, though. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's where it's going it's going one above marvel comics number one all right it cracked 200 by which i mean it's number <laughs> 202 oh boy but not for long <laughs> it, it'll continue to be plunged yeah yeah okay so wonderful wizard of oz adaptation by scotty young my initial immediate gut feeling and you guys might need to talk me down i want to put this above demon days I want to put this at the new number 20. That's quite a bit higher than I thought. I love this book. This book is fantastic. I love the adaptation. I love the fanciful fairy tale stuff. This is... I know Scotty Young's gone on to do other work, and he probably wants to be known for the other work more than he wants to be known for The Wizard of Oz, but this is a masterpiece, as far as I'm concerned, of comics adaptation. The art is a delight, and I think it is comparable to Peach Momoko and the work that she does on Demon Days. The and this o- doesn't have a random suicide. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that's, you can talk me down. I'm just really high on this book. I I'm not like gonna, I'm not gonna talk you down, honestly. I, that's right around what I was thinking. I was thinking low 20s, high teens as well. I wasn't sure. I thought I was gonna have to be talked down. John, it's up to you. I love the... Well, oh, now I feel bad, because I'm never the naysayer of uh, good stuff. <laughs> I mean, you did just bad talk Maverick, so I don't know. I wouldn't necessarily hold that. That is not claim. a good movie. Let's have a it is not fantastic. a good movie. It will not hold up upon repeat viewings, I promise you. We will look back on this in a year, and you'll go, you know, John, you were right about Maverick. I got caught up in the moment, I'm gonna put and a it Google, was a piece I'm of I'm going to put a Google reminder for, like, November <laughs> next year. Rewatch John. Rewatch Maverick to spite John and bring it up in podcast. Part of me want. Part of me wants to watch it again just to like watch it with someone and be like, "Hey, you see this moment? This moment is where I like slumped down in my seat and like prayed for a, a fire alarm to go off or something in the theater." <laughs> no, it's a bad movie, but we're, we're, we we will revisit this in a year. I was thinking down by Taskmaster at thirty seven, um, but the art. Uh, now I'm going up the list closer to where you are and the art surpasses a lot of this there's so much good art in this section of the mm-hmm. list daredevil yellow yeah. last days of magic ah oh, gosh 
I have trouble putting this higher than Messiah Complex, Man Without Fear, <laughs> Dark Phoenix, because the art is incredible, the art is exceptional, the story's a bit wordy, you know, those eight issues probably could have been six, but I think the, its job was to, you know, do a good adaptation, meaning include more than what you normally would if you were taking your own story for the first time and telling it in a comic book medium as opposed to a novel first and then a comic book. I'm okay I'm okay losing out here and and putting it higher because I just don't feel like I have a strong enough argument. To to be and, fair uh, uh, or not to be fair, but actually talking about the length of the book, I actually like I feel like in the last few episodes maybe i've read or we've read some books where i have felt like could benefit from a little bit more i've also seen some tv shows just a couple more episodes really benefited i was a little Mm -hmm. worried about this being eight issues at least but at least for me the pacing on it did not feel like it was eight issues i was actually really pleased with that it had the breathing to explore as much of the story of the original text as it did i think packing the same story in less issues i think would have definitely yeah i I think it would have run into the Pride and Prejudice problem there. That said, I'm not I'm not really unsympathetic to John's argument. I I think the highest I want to go is twenty six, just after Dark Phoenix. You know, I I would think that our twenty five should exemplify something where the art and the writing is seamless, really goes well together. But Dark Phoenix is not seamless. It is it is messy. It is. It goes to a lot of places. It's it, a classic. It's it's a Claremont book, and it has the problems of a Claremont thing that we've been talking about <laughs> this whole episode. <laughs> I feel like Messiah I've, Complex is a stronger argument for what you're trying to say. I don't think Dark. Th- then, then all the things except that. <laughs> <laughs> but then we're you know I yeah I would just put it right after Demon Days then if that's where we're at. Okay, and um, you say right after Demon Days. So number 21 mm-hmm. above absolute carnage. Yeah. I'm willing to go down to that. I think and I again like no shade to Messiah Complex or those other stories that you mentioned. Oh man, I just saw Winter Soldier and thought mm, maybe I do want to put this beneath Winter Soldier. Um, stop it. Stop it. <laughs> Winter Soldier, I remember the art being serviceable and like the style is good and the design of Winter Soldier is very cool and is, you know, persisted this whole time but i don't remember being like having my boots knocked off i'm okay putting it above absolute carnage again my problem with messiah complex and i guess part of my problem in comparison is we've talked a lot about the synergy of art and writing which we have for the most part a lot of us have felt positive on messiah complex doesn't have that the art because because of the it's an event comic with multiple titles and multiple artists yeah, Fair. different creative teams. Sometimes the art meshes really well with the writer. Sometimes it meshes really well for the part of the story they're in. Not all of the time. Where I think, uh, for anything, this book is consistent f- simply for the sake of having a single creative. That's not necessarily That's Messiah fair. Complex's fault, but it's a fault it has to live. Yeah. It's a fault in its star. <laughs> <laughs> I've not read that book. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought you were trying to make us sad. Nope. I think, uh, let's put it there. I feel yeah. I feel pretty good about that. I think that was well reasoned, although as well putting it above the the Messiah book. Sometimes I pull skills from when I used to be in speech and debate. Oh, <laughs> that's how I lettered. <laughs> I lettered in music, so you know. I went to school. <laughs> <laughs> so for our next episode, we got some some new stories. New stories. Uh, gonna be an interesting couple of books. To, to 
cover. One is a, actually I'm really glad we're reading this one, Champions, the ongoing series that began in 2016 spinning out of Civil War II. Never wanted to read Civil War II. We're absolutely going to have to read it for the podcast at some point. I've always wanted to read Champions because it has all of the kids, the kid superheroes, and I love those kid superheroes. We're going to read the first six issues of Champions, and we're going to follow that up with an event comic that I've been really wanting to read pretty much ever since we read Absolute Carnage, and that's King in Black, a story that I didn't think I was going to be interested in, and I don't know, Absolute Carnage kind of was a lead into it, and it caught my attention in a way that was really compelling, so I wanted to check it out, and we're going to do it. We're going to read the five-issue main event of King in Black, you know. Uh, while we prepare ourselves to commemorate the arrival of the King of Kings, uh, as we will be reading this going into the Christmas season. I thought you could. I I don't. I thought this was going to be a Thanksgiving joke, something about <laughs> as we wait for the arrival of the pro, the pilgrims or something, because we are recording this <laughs> a few days before Thanksgiving. <laughs> so we followed up the turkey that was Pride and Prejudice with the turkey that induces a coma. Hey, but we definitely feasted on the turducken that is. <laughs> That is the wonderful Wizard of Oz. It is a delightful pumpkin pie. Not one of those kind of gross, soggy, heavy pumpkin pies, but one that actually has a good, solid, flaky crust and some solid food metaphors. I'm really bad at this. Also, I don't actually like pumpkin pie that much. I don't either. Thank you. Oh, see, I love it. And it's kind of the texture of it um, is what I hate in other foods. Also, I realized, I had a realization that for five or six dollars, you can get an enormous pumpkin pie from Costco and save yourself the uh, headache of, you know, cooking it and, oh, is it going to turn out right? Is it going to crack in the middle? Oh, am I going to have it? Life's too short to worry about your pumpkin pie. You know, focus on making another fancy pie, like do like a lattice uh, apple pie or something. Have that be your focus. Buy the pie. Why would you put lettuce in your apple pie? <laughs> I don't know. It looks cool on the top. How do you do your pumpkin? Your apple pie with cabbage. Stop it. I'm sorry. Stop it. You both. Stop it. Why? <laughs> Lettuce. <laughs> oh, I see you. 